from the Teaching and Learning Collaborative at the Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm Josh Luckins, instructional designer and host of the CoLab podcast, where we dive deep into the art and science of teaching and learning. I am thrilled to be joined again today by my instructional design colleagues, Lucy Wolski and Megan Hamilton-Gebert, who is also the editor of this podcast. Lucy and Megan, welcome back to the CoLab. Thanks. Good to see everyone. Great to be here, Josh. So today we're going to be talking about universal design for learning, which is often abbreviated as UDL. Universal design for learning, it's a framework. It's a big, big thing, a big topic, a big idea. Tons of books have been written about it. And our goal today is just to provide our listeners with an introduction to what it is, what it's all about, and how you can use it in designing and implementing learning experiences that you are facilitating and planning for any audience, really, in any context. That's what's so wonderful about it. It can be really widely applied. So just to give you a tiny intro, it's a framework that seeks to improve and optimize teaching and learning for all people based on scientific insights into how humans learn best. So research shows that the ways in which people learn are as unique as their fingerprints. So UDL guides the design of learning environments that reduce barriers to learning and empowers students to become expert learners in the rich diversity of ways that people learn. Lucy and Megan, I'd love to hear your elevator pitches for UDL. If a faculty member came up to you and was like, you know, I've heard about this universal design for learning thing. What exactly is it? How could it be useful to me? What might you tell them? I clued into a phrase that you said about reducing barriers to learning. And I think that's at the heart of what UDL's goal is. And there's a lot of overlap with accessibility and accessible principles that fits into that framework of reducing barriers. And the whole point and purpose of UDL is to try to make sure that your learning experiences are reaching as many learners as possible. So what can I do to maximize what I'm doing in the classroom to make sure that every learner is able to fully benefit from it? I know that it's a crowded market for learning theories, but what I like about UDL is it does feel kind of like a one-stop shop because it is so comprehensive in strategies that it introduces and options to think about in terms of how do I reach as many learners as possible. How about you, Lucy? My elevator pitch is that it is a tool. It's a faculty tool, and I usually mention it whenever they use the keywords such as learning styles or accessibility, because then I redirect them towards this. Like Megan says, it's it's such a all-encompassing tool. And I also pitch it as a plus one approach. You do not have to do all of the things because that can be really overwhelming. Just like it says in the guide that you created, that's probably going to be linked to the resources at the bottom of the podcast page. It's a plus one approach, right? Find an area that you are invested in or that you're passionate about and then address that area to make it as excellent as possible. Love it. And you are right. We will definitely be putting a ton of resources on universal design for learning in the show notes. So check those out. And just to get us started with this idea of universal design, it actually comes from architecture and this notion of how do we design a built environment that is accessible and welcoming to all. So if you can imagine a curb cut on a sidewalk, so instead of having to just clunk down it, there's a a little ramp. 
And I've even seen urban design where you have, you know, in addition to a ramp going up alongside a staircase, even a ramp cutting through a staircase. So there's literally two ways to get up or down uh, between two places. And that's the objective. If you think about, you know, we talk about learning objectives and learning outcomes, what our goal is for learners when we design learning experiences. That's the objective of a designer of a space in that case, so that people can easily get up and down. And by putting a ramp in addition to a staircase, it just provides this one more way, like a plus one, as Lucy said, one more way. And it might be that the reason, the original reason that we have a ramp is that there was a law created ADA and it said, okay, we, for people in wheelchairs, we need to have a ramp. Great. It turns out that that ramp doesn't just benefit the people who might be in a wheelchair. It also benefits, let's say you have a rolling suitcase because you're on a trip. Let's say you're on a bike and you have to get off and walk or you want to bike up it. You have wheels in that regard. There's a ton of other examples of people who are benefited by this one plus one, this one additional way to reach the goal, which is not to get exercise by doing a Stairmaster, it's to get between point A and point B. And it's the same idea with designing our learning environment. So I just love that, that analogy. I think it helps make the principles of universal design for learning a little more concrete when you think of universal design examples like that in our world. And an example that comes to mind for me is automatic doors. So doors that automatically open, grocery store model, you walk up to it and it opens for you. And I think about how convenient that would have been for me, even though I'm not a wheelchair user, but I remember I was on a trip one time and accidentally hurt my foot and then had to be on crutches for a week. And all of a sudden, automatic doors became very essential to me being able to enter and exit buildings while navigating that temporary situation on crutches. And so just it's a way to make your interactions with the environment seamless so that you can experience the environment in the same way as somebody without assistive technology or uh, specific needs to navigate. Another flavor to add to that is the user experience flavor. When we're designing for people to learn, we think about their user experience and these guidelines touch on a lot of that experience. So that's just another flavor or perspective to bring in when you're looking at this. I love the example of the doors. If you, you know, on our campus, if you are trying to go into a building, there's a little button on the outside. I think it even has a picture of someone in a wheelchair, but I can't even count the number of times I've seen somebody pressing that button because they're carrying a heavy box or because, you know, there's a lot of people who are trying to go through at the same time or, you know, infinite reasons. So I love this idea of designing things that have multiple ways of getting in and thinking just about the goal in mind and how we're going to meet that goal in creative ways that benefit all sorts of people. So just to talk about the background of, of how and why this was created, this whole framework. And I love to look back at the history of teaching and learning a little bit. And back in the day, however we define that, human beings have always learned in kind of personalized and differentiated ways that best fit their learning styles. If you think about our ancient ancestors teaching their children how to make a fire, they taught it differently to different kids as you if you have kids you know they're they're all kind of different they have different needs different ways of, of engaging and learning and then we had apprenticeship models for a long time people apprenticing as blacksmiths as weavers and it was very one-on-one -on -one, personalized right it was only with industrial age with industrialization that we got this schooling model of kind of one size fits all everyone sits in rows everyone listens to the same lecture everyone writes the same paper takes the same exam in the same amount of time that's really recent and it turns out it doesn't work very well for 
a lot of people because of how we know that humans learn. And the folks who came up with this universal design for learning thing were actually early researchers into brain-based learning science. So they were exploring the neuroscience of learning as, as we got more tools to be able to measure what's happening in the brain as learning activities are happening. They actually start off doing diagnoses and they're diagnosing students with learning disabilities. And they're like, oh, well, this is going to be very helpful for them. You know, they're now they're going to know they have this disability. It's going to be great. Turns out they're like, well, that, that actually hasn't improved outcomes for these students. So what we actually have to do is change the learning environment. It's not about changing the learner. It's about changing the system and the environment so that it supports the ways that everyone uniquely needs to learn. So that's kind of the, the background of where this all comes from and continues to be guided by brain-based science and our evolving understanding of how learning works in the human brain. Do you have any thoughts to add about that, Lucy or Megan, about changing the environment rather than trying to force learners into, uh, into boxes? I love the way you explained that because I've worked with professors who will say there's something wrong with their students. My students are this, my students aren't this. And that always gives me pause to think maybe, but maybe it's the environment that we can actually affect change in. I agree, Lucy. I think there's occasionally a very traditional way of thinking about teaching in that the only way for students to be able to learn this is if I teach them exactly how I was taught to learn this. And how you were taught may have been simply listening to a lecture for an hour and a half every day, reading a very dense textbook, reading it twice just for good measure, and then in order to pass your exam being locked in a room for eight hours to regurgitate statistical regressions onto a piece of paper to prove that you can do those in your head. And I think that those methods of learning are not quite methods of learning, but more practices that I would describe as academic hazing. The idea being that you cannot succeed in this academic environment unless you've performed under the exact stressful conditions that I had to in order to become an expert in my field. And I think that that model is a very exclusive model, whereas universal design for learning provides a more inclusive model of instruction that I think we should be striving for in our classrooms. Definitely. And one of the hallmarks of universal design for learning is this idea of multiple means of instruction. Just as in the built environment, that intervention of having another way to open the door, our goal is just to get through the door. That's it. Another way of opening it, in addition to me pulling it, might benefit just, you know, designed for somebody in a wheelchair, but it's going to benefit all sorts of people, all sorts of people trying to go through doors. The same thing happens in our classrooms. So we want to design our classrooms with multiple means of instruction in mind. And there's three frameworks that UDL suggests that all connect to different neural networks that exist in our brains. So the first is the affective network, which has to do with the why of learning, the why or the purpose. So that's a really key first step to engaging students is that they know and internalize the purpose and reason for doing what we're doing or else who cares? Why, why should any of this learning stick in their brains beyond maybe a test? And how would they then transfer it to something meaningful in the future? So this is addressed through multiple means of engagement in the UDL framework. Multiple means of engagement is really for purposeful, motivated learners to stimulate interest and motivation 
for learning, sustaining that effort and that persistence, because there's a really clear goal for why they're doing it and how they're going to be able to use it. And also providing options for self-regulation for students to kind of approach the learning in the way that, that meets their learning needs best in the moment. So that's kind of our first of three categories, the effective network, the why of learning, multiple means of engagement. So our second category, I'll kick it over to Megan to tell us a bit about multiple means of representation, which has to do with that recognition network in the brain or the what of learning. So multiple means of representation encompasses a variety of ways to present content or learning topics to the students so that students have options for how they perceive the information, the new topics and concepts, how they have the ability to read in multiple languages or read using symbols that might be more familiar to them, not at the expense of making sure they don't learn the academic terms relevant in the field in the language that's used in the field, but so that they can contribute to their own understanding in a way that makes sense to them and help them build on that meaningfully. Multiple means of representation also allows students multiple options for how to comprehend the material so that they may be reading a book about it, but also watching a three-minute video about it. And then three-minute video might have a practice quiz that pops up at the end of it that they have the option to take. For students who report visual learning preference, they may have graphs and images available and figures and flowcharts available. So the idea is designing learning content so that it can be accessed in multiple ways so that students can pick and choose how to best study. Let's kick it over to Lucy for the third category, multiple means of action and expression that has to do with the strategic neural networks or the how of learning. Yes, that's right. So when we provide multiple means of action and expression, three main guidelines are about providing options for physical action, providing options for expression and communication, and providing options for executive functions. And the goal ultimately of UDL is to empower our learners to be purposeful and motivated with the multiple means of engagement, to be resourceful and knowledgeable by providing multiple means of representation, and to be strategic and goal-driven through multiple means of action and expression, and thereby touch on all of these different neural networks in our brains that go into learning. It's really interesting. I actually listened to a podcast interviewing David Rose, one of the founders of UDL, and he said, it's time for them to revamp the UDL guidelines because brain-based research into learning has evolved since they made these guidelines. And there's a whole plethora of research now into the crucial role of emotion and it's not just about cognition, but actually the networks, neural networks in our brains that guide our emotions are right in the center and core of our brains. They're some of the oldest structures in our brains. And, you know, some recent uh, history uh, with uh, some disinformation campaigns that have gone on might give you clues as to how emotions might influence people to think in and believe in certain ways. So there's a really important role for emotion, social, emotional learning, and all that. And, you know, the UDL guidelines aren't meant to be static. They're meant to be responsive as as we continue things that we continually learn about how we as humans operate. Speaking of revisions, there is a process in place to 
revised the UDL guidelines to account for equity in learning, which I think is a, a meaningful topic that may not be fully integrated into the current UDL model, but it's specifically called UDL Rising to Equity Initiative to address some of the systemic barriers that result in inequitable learning opportunities and make sure the model has a way to explain and account for and integrate with that reality in which we find ourselves. Again, it's about recognizing the reality of what's going on. We live in a society rife with inequity and responding to that and being present with the learners we have in the context that we have. Let's provide some concrete examples as we get into our discussion further of how to do this multiple means of instruction thing. So one really clear example that draws a very obvious through line from, you know, two ways to walk through a doorway, one by pushing the door and one by pushing a button is subtitles on videos. For example, you know, you have a video and there's only one way for you to understand what's being said, and that's to hear it. Well, why not add subtitles? Obviously, you might say, okay, well, somebody who's hard of hearing, that's going to be just for them. But no, all of a sudden, there's all sorts of other people who benefit from that one intervention, that one addition, another way of representing the content, that multiple means of representation of the language is going to benefit English language learners. It's going to benefit people who have an audio problem. It's going to benefit people who are can't have the audio on because they're babies sleeping or they don't have headphones or uh, I don't know. What, what other examples could you think of, Lucy and Megan? You want more examples? I've got examples, Josh, yes. because this is one of my favorite topics. The simple act of adding captions to a video or adding a text-based alternative to audio that your students may be hearing. This benefits, as you mentioned, English language learners who may be still mastering English, and it may help to have the words spelled out as well as listened to. This benefits students with focusing issues and concentration issues who may have mental diagnoses that make it more difficult for them to focus. It turns out actually providing the words in sync with the text that they're hearing improves attention and helps them to clue into the video and stay with the video for longer. As you mentioned, uh, people who may not have access to audio, either their speakers are broken, they left their headsets at home, they're watching on a train and need to be able to just read the captions instead of hearing it. One of my favorites is a student who was a parent and trying to study, but had very loud kids in the room with her. And she needed to use the captions because her kids were so loud she couldn't hear the video. So just how that one small intervention made a meaningful difference in how students could actually participate and engage with the material, uh, how it helped them study. If I could take it back to the action and expression component, one of my favorites is the executive functions. So I'm a mom, I'm raising young people, future adults, and executive functioning doesn't come easy for everyone. So I've actually spent a lot of time in the, my mom's sphere thinking about executive function, which is the way we plan and self-regulate and improve to an extent. And one example of how I have seen that in instructional design or higher ed is by giving people milestones to meet, right? Submit your topic, submit your first draft. Maybe the first draft is worth 75 points, but your revisions are worth 90 points. That way we encourage both the effort for the first draft, as well as the, the next stage in your development for your writing. So I think that's a good example of using executive functions in your course. 
Yeah, it's a great example of setting your students up to succeed and removing unnecessary barriers to learning that, you know, as Megan said, are kind of like academic hazing. <laughs> it's like, well, we've always done it this way. So this is how we're going to keep doing it. And it's like, well, let's take a step back. And actually, let's think about what the goals are. That goes back to the importance of having really clear and strong learning objectives or learning outcomes and knowing what the point is. For example, if your goal is for students to be able to write a five paragraph essay using APA format citation, then you're going to want to give them practice doing exactly that thing. That's really important. Great. If your goal is for them to show that they can analyze a literary work in a meaningful way, well, do they have to do it in a five paragraph essay form? Or could they also show a depth of analysis in a variety of other types of projects by making a video or making a podcast or making a graphic novel representation or making a concept map or some other of the many plethora of ways that students could show what they know and be able to show that they can, in fact, analyze a work of literature. So just to step back and be like, what wait, what are we doing here and why are we doing it? Is it just because we've always done it this way? Or actually, could I provide students with another way that they could show what they know that might open up the doorways for some students to really shine and express themselves in ways I never could have imagined possible? You said, Josh, you used the word goal. And Lucy, I think you hinted at it too with some of your earlier ideas. But I think that it can often be scary to listen to us IDs who may be providing suggestions for what you can do in the classroom, but not being in the classroom with you to hear our ideas and think, well, what are these people talking about? I need this structure. I need this specific activity to assess. I don't see any other way that I could assess this particular goal. I think the heart of that is evaluating the quality of your goal. What are your learning goals for the course? Ultimately, what do you want your students to learn while in your course? And then what assessment methods could I use to get there? And the creativity comes perhaps in what the final product would look like. But as long as each of those final products is assessing the same well-written, high-quality learning goal, you can use that as your guidepost for making changes and adding new methods of assessment into your course in accordance with the UDL guidelines. Yeah, that is such an important point, Megan, because instructors sometimes want to know just the action items. What can I do about it? And luckily, the website, udlguidelines.cast.org, will actually have steps that you can take. So it's very action-oriented. And applicable to all disciplines. Because this framework is really about first embracing the reality of learner variability that a one-size-fits-all approach is not going to fit anyone particularly well, and having firm, clear goals with flexible means to meet them, with the ultimate goal of creating expert learners who are going to be able to transfer that and retain and transfer their learning in the future. So ask yourself, how can you add one more interaction where students are interacting with the content of the course, like a reading, a video, an audio, expert interview, a field trip, some other way of interacting with the content of the course. And then one other way of how students might interact with each other. So maybe they are, are doing a mind mapping activity together, or they have a discussion board where they collaborate or some sort of shared site where they're adding to small groups, partners, they're doing debates, they're conducting experiments, problem sets. There's some other way that students are interacting with one another. Another way that students are interacting with the instructor and getting meaningful and actionable feedback. So maybe there's some small group 
meetings. Maybe there's a mentorship thing. There's an oral part where each student has the opportunity to meet with the instructor, some other formative feedback. So one other way that you're interacting with your students. And then one other way that students are interacting with the wider world, whether that's bringing in news clips or, or guest speakers or going out into the world or whatever that might be to really ground it in something that is happening in reality. So in a traditional classroom, you might have kind of one way to get the content, do the reading, and then uh, one way to represent your thoughts by writing about it. And so UDL would just suggest that that is serving only a small subset of learners. By adding more ways to represent, to engage, and all these things, you're going to help everyone succeed deeper and longer. I think that your point there, Josh, does allude to one of the shortcomings of universal design for learning in that it can quickly get overwhelming. And I love it when our theories and principles and values about learning start conflicting with each other. And I value universal design for learning. I also value clarity in expectations. And it is tempting sometimes as you're adding more options for engagement and more options for content and more options for assessment into your course. It can suddenly feel like you're providing students not with a syllabus, but a, a Cheesecake Factory menu, uh, where it's just too many options in the course. And that's one thing to keep in mind as you are getting inspired to bring more changes into your classroom. Make sure that you're providing choice with guidance and choice with clear expectations about what it'll actually take for students to succeed, what success looks like amidst this smorgasbord of UDL options. Luckily, we have a guide in our friend Tom Tobin, who wrote a book called Reach Everyone, Teach Everyone, Universal Design for Learning in Higher Education, in which he lays out in detail this plus one approach that Lucy alluded to earlier, and suggests that you ask yourself as you design your course the following questions to identify specific areas within your course, not the whole course, just a specific moment for a redesign where you might add another way for students to access the content so they can reduce barriers. So here's the questions. Where in your curriculum do your students tend to repeatedly ask the same question? When do your students tend to ask for alternative explanations? And what concepts do your students tend to get wrong on tests and quizzes? Once you've identified those areas of common challenge in your courses, you can take a plus one approach by adding one new interaction around a challenging concept, you know, another way for students to get to know it, peer teaching, case study, whatever it might be, add one new way for them to demonstrate their learning of that concept that would benefit each other. Maybe they make a short video in small groups that they share with the rest of the class, and that just provides a way for them to clarify their own thinking, but also to share it with the other people. And that might be another way for them to uh, enhance their understanding. And then add one more feedback mechanism on a piece of formative assessment that they're doing to get better in the long run as they practice these whatever skill you're adding. So it's kind of like the ramp a little bit in a way that it's providing more scaffolds and more structures on specific elements of the course where students are often experiencing challenges that you're just providing them to be able to be more successful in reducing those barriers to learning. Beautiful. I love universal design for learning. I have another con that I like to mention. It tends to sound very academic and very clinical when you're describing it. Provide multiple means of engagement and the affective networks and multiple means of representation and the recognition networks. And 
if you started tuning out just as you were listening to that, that is one downside that I find with this set of guidelines. However, the thing that gives me hope with these guidelines is that it boils down to the core message of how do I engage all my learners? How do I reduce barriers to learning wherever possible in the course? So as long as you've got that as your guiding star, as you're entering into some of this more terminology-driven aspects of the guidelines, I think you'll be in good shape for moving forward. Yeah. And maybe the perspective shift needed to make it feel more accessible is that these are just essential questions. Like, does your course give students a chance to physically respond? Does your course give students a chance to understand this symbols and expressions. So that might be a good shift is just to think of them as kind of essential questions, kind of like checkpoints. That's a great strategy because you're right. When you first look at this framework, it is a little overwhelming. There is a website specifically dedicated for universal design for learning and higher education, which we'll put in the show notes as well. But it's something that dovetails with and overlaps with lots of other best practices in teaching and learning that we know about that are connected to all the research and how humans learn best. So it's not some new thing that's saying something totally different from anything else. It's just another way of putting these best practices in context in a really broad context, kind of a big umbrella that takes in a lot of other things. So if you're already active learning and flipping your classroom and doing things like this isn't instead of, this is another way to look at it and make sure that all your students are being set up for success. Something else I wanted to mention that you brought up earlier, Lucy, is when faculty might be like, you know, I've heard about, you know, learning styles. And it's like, okay, let's talk about that really quickly as it relates to UDL, because there is no research that supports the idea that I'm going to be a better learner just by hearing, and you're going to be a better learner just by reading. There is, however, lots of research suggests that there are learning preferences that change and shift over time, neuroplasticity didn't even exist 50 years ago. And now we know that we're constantly changing and developing new neural networks. And so this idea of learning preferences is that, yeah, in a given moment, based on kind of where I am in my life and also the circumstances around me, it might work really well for me to learn in a, with a certain modality or be involved in class in one of these a variety of ways. That's real and true. So it's kind of like professors or, or faculty are like, like all my students do is just sit there and listen to me and they're kind of eyes glazed. And, you know, no wonder they're looking at their TikTok all day during my class. It's like, that's so true. What other ways could we give your students to engage in your class? And just some of those best practices in student engagement and active learning will would be universal design for learning practices because you're giving students another way to, to engage with the content, whether it's something that involves them getting up and moving around, using their bodies, talking to one another, social, whatever it might be. It's just another way to bring the class to life and get your students involved in learning. Anything else to add about universal design for learning as we start wrapping up? Reflecting on the learning environment at Wentworth and thinking about what strengths we have that already are compatible with UDL guidelines, but also what opportunities we have to align with them more fully. I'm proud to say I do see a lot of multiple means of engagement in our classrooms. I feel like with the lab experiences that we're able to offer our students, they get a lot of hands-on real-world experimenting and prototyping. I think that our actions and expression reflect that as well in terms of assessing our students with projects rather than just exams. The facet of these guidelines most near and dear to my heart is multiple means of representation, and I do think I see more opportunities to improve there in terms of the type of content we're bringing into the course and how 
effectively that content is reaching all learners. So being able to have both a reading and a video to go along it, making sure the video has a text-based alternative to go with it, making sure that any images or graphs we're providing to our students have alt text so that students using assistive technology can fully view and experience that image. Other methods of ensuring that whatever materials we're providing to our students are reachable and accessible to all learners. One concluding thought to add is just, if you're a Wentworth faculty member, definitely reach out to us at the Teaching and Learning Collaborative, teach at wit.edu. We'd be happy to help you universally design your course for all your learners. And if you work at a different university, it's very likely that you have a center for teaching and learning there, just like we have here. So check out those resources. There's people, instructional designers and other faculty development folks who are really there to help you do this and help you support your students' success. So take advantage of, of those resources. We're here to help and happy to help. Lucy and Megan, any last thoughts or last uh, reflections on universal design for learning? Just that it's a useful tool to have in your backpack. It's definitely something worth a bookmark on your browser. And I hope you have fun as you plan your next activity or your next course. Have fun with it. And remember why we teach, right? Be inspired to take on new challenges, or as Josh will say later, be curious <laughs> as to why we do the things we do and how we can improve. So just kind of go into it with a sense of adventure and curiosity. I love that because so much of UDL is about, oh, wow, how can I make this come alive more? And how can I empower my students to get creative with it and do something really cool and give them just that one other option that's, you know, maybe not everyone's going to take it. Maybe though most people will write the essay, but if you have the option on there that you, know, you could also do a different format, offer format freedom in some way, someone's going to take you up on it and it's going to make their semester and maybe their college career. So go for it. We're here to help and we are excited to see all of the magic that you create. Lucy and Megan, thanks so much for joining me this afternoon to talk about universal design for learning. I'm Josh Luckins, instructional designer and host of the CoLab podcast, a production of the instructional design team at the Teaching and Learning Collaborative here at the Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston, Massachusetts. Thank you for listening. And as always, stay curious. I have so much fun doing this with you guys. So thank you. Absolutely. You're so welcome. This is a blast. What a pleasure. Good. Wow. That should be in the show somewhere. That was so good. I can work in that aw moment. Yeah, it was great. <laughs>